morning, church. And to you who are online, good morning as well. Uh, I want to begin by telling you about this moment uh, of significance uh, in the man named John Sane. He was uh, someone who from his early teens had loved hunting and camping and so had spent hours and hours and hours by himself out in the backwoods of Idaho or wherever adventure took him. On this particular elk hunting trip, you can maybe imagine, I know many of you are hunters, um, I have hunted, I would not call myself a hunter because I'm terrible, uh, so it's mostly just me wandering, uh, but John, you can maybe imagine his, uh, that moment of adrenaline and just pure energy that kicks in when as he's glassing over the ridgeline, he spots the elk that he deems worthy of fulfilling his elk tag. Unfortunately, from his vantage point, he doesn't yet have a shot, and so he begins the long and what I'm sure is laborious work of beginning to stalk this elk uh, through the backcountry of Idaho. And it's, it's a challenge because you have to get close enough to get a shot, but you're navigating difficult terrain and trying to do so quietly. And so I don't know if there was a moment where he was just, because of the adrenaline, super zeroed in or what, but there, there was a couple logs that had blown down and John was trying to step up and over them. And as he stepped up and over, his right leg slipped through. Unfortunately, his momentum carried forward. His leg got pinned and it snapped his tibia and fibia in half. The pain, he said, was absolutely excruciating, and he was hunting by himself, miles from the nearest trail, and so literally no one knew that John was out there. And he laid in pure agony, trying to understand what his next move might be, and he said later, he really seriously considered taking his life in that moment. He said that, I mean, there was no hope. How can I navigate the miles of rough terrain uh, with a fully broken leg? And so he began the heartbreaking, excruciating work of writing his farewell note to his family. Can you imagine? I mean, what, what do you even say? And he starts to write this note. And then it said, he said something in him clicked. And he said, no, 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 not today. I, I am not going to die out here in the middle of nowhere. And John began to act with a new sense of urgency. And he, he had in front of him a new mission. And his mission was this, I want to see my family alive again. And that urgency was driven by his mission to see his wife, to see his kids. And so he began to act in, with urgency. And there was a timeliness to this moment. If he doesn't act now, he's not going to make it. And so he begins to take action and he fashions a sort of crude crutch out of a, a, a branch and puts some, some clothes on the top of it. And he begins to hobble and crawl and navigate his way over four days, several miles to the nearest trail. He stumbles out onto the nearest trail, severely dehydrated at this point, malnourished. And lo and behold, there were two dirt bikers who had gotten lost. It's kind of a miraculous thing, actually. They were lost and they stumble across John Sane. And one of them runs back, drives back on his dirt bike to where he has cell service. They call in a helicopter and they clear out a space for a landing pad. And John is helivacked out of there to a hospital and survived. And he would say that his survival was because of that moment where something clicked and he acted with urgency, but his urgency was driven by two things. It was driven by a clear sense of mission. I want to see my family. And it was driven by a sense of timeliness. If I don't act now, there's no hope. There's nothing that will happen, nothing that will change. 
And I tell you that story because I think what it does for us is it frames in a little bit of, of maybe Paul's mindset as he's writing to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 13. We're going to dive into this day, today where Paul talks about the hour has come for the church in Rome to wake up from their slumber. And what Paul is encouraging the, the Christians to do is to act with urgency, driven by a sense of mission and driven by the significance of the time that we're in. So as we've been walking through this series called Practical Practical Christianity, our key series idea is this, that you and I are called to tangibly live out our radical identity as Jesus followers in a transformative way, right? What we believe is that when you follow Jesus Christ, that he transforms us, that he changes us to be a people who more and more reflect his character. And we are called to live out our identity as Christians, as those who are like Christ. And we are to do so in a transformative way that makes a change and an impact and has a gospel presence in all of the spheres of influence that God has blessed you with. So the big idea that I want to push into today is this, is that you and I are called to step into gospel living, aligning our life with the words, ways, and wisdom of God with urgency. And I want to suggest to you, church, that the urgency of our moment, the urgency of our call to step into gospel living is driven by our mission as believers and is driven by the significance of the times that we're in. And so I want to unpack several of these things for us this morning. But first, I I want to address this tension. And the tension is this, right? We, We talk about living with urgency. We talk about our gospel mission to live out a Jesus transformative presence driven by the times that we're in. And yet here's this tension. And maybe you're wrestling with a similar question as I am is what difference can I possibly make? Do you feel that tension? Whether you look at uh, the, 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 the cultural things that are happening, whether you look at your own sphere of influence, sometimes I have this thought of what difference can I possibly make? How can I possibly bring any sort of transformative presence to this place? Do you ever feel that tension? As we talk about the, the, the grand call of believers to, to offer your life to Jesus, to step into that way of living and to have a transformative impact? So I want to draw you into the scenario that Paul is writing to in the early church at Rome. It's likely that the book of Romans is written somewhere mid-AD 50s, AD 54, AD 55. Now, when we think church, right, you might call to mind this picture of what's in front of you right now, right? But the early church in Rome in the first century was not a large gathering of believers, Uh, One scholar, Scott McKnight, he says it's likely at this time that there were four, maybe five house churches in the capital city of Rome. He said, no, when when you think church, he said, you have to understand that most of these early believers in first century Rome, they were likely, uh, a lot of them were slaves or former slaves. They were likely very poor. So these were not people in positions of authority. These were not people in positions of power. These were people largely on the fringes of society. He says, what this means that they hosted the churches in their homes, they had small living spaces. He said, imagine four or five gatherings of somewhere around 30 Christians, 30 believers. He said, Max, you you would maybe fit in one of their small apartments in the capital city of Rome. You could maybe fit 40 people. So let's go on the generous side and let's say in the capital city of Rome at this time that there are five house churches of 40 people. There are maybe 200 believers in this early church. And you can imagine that as Paul writes them, uh, that we'll talk about in a second, the hour has come to wake up from your slumber and, and to step into this mission. You can imagine that as Paul writes this to them, they're going, Paul, look at us. 
And in a city of of hundreds of thousands of people, there's maybe 200 of us, and we don't even have power. We don't even have influence. We don't even have authority. And you can imagine that they're struggling with this question of, of how do we even begin to make a difference? And the, the early believers, they're living in this time and season of history, just like we are, when, when three things have happened. We believe, right, that Jesus came to this earth, that he was born in a manger as a baby, that he lived and ministered, that he died on the cross, and that he ultimately rose again three days later. Now, imagine the early believers in Rome, this ragtag group of, of 30 or 40 people gathered in a house. This is what they are willing to bet their life on. They are living at a time when to be a Christian, you were socially marginalized. In fact, in, a, in about a decade or so, the emperor Nero would literally light Christian bodies on fire to, as, as lamps in his garden, right? This is the kind of, of, of potential danger they were in. And they said, we believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus so much that we will pour our life into it. Now, the hope of the early Christians, just like us, is that we believe that Jesus is going to come again as a king. And when Jesus returns the second time, we're told in Philippians that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And so our hope as believers is that the Jesus who came as a baby, who died on the cross and rose again three days later, that he will return triumphant as a king. Now, the problem and the tension is that we live in the here and now. The early believers, they had to live under the power structures of Rome. So I wanted to visually represent this, right? We have the hope of Jesus already here. We have the tension of the cultural times and the power structures that we're living in submission to. And we have the hope of Jesus coming as king. And this is the cultural environment that those early believers are living in. And Paul writes to them and says, Do these things with a sense of urgency. Step into your mission as believers. And yet, if you're like me, we have this tension. How do I make a difference? Now, let me back up a little bit and and wrestle with a couple of the things that we've talked about over the last three weeks. Um, Alan, if you'll switch to that feed, please. Um, We've been talking about Romans chapter 13. uh, And the first half of this passage is all about submission to authority. You'll remember Pastor Steve spent two weeks kind of fleshing out this idea of submission to authority. And one of the things that Paul says in this passage is he says, uh, he says, don't rebel against authority because he says, if you rebel, you are rebelling against what God has instituted because God has instituted all authority. Did you guys wrestle with that? I'll I'll be honest. I've been reading and rereading this text for months now, preparing for this. Every time I get to that, I have to like slide the Bible away and go, oh, really? Every authority? And then there's this tension that we're drawn into that, that God is somehow, even when there's authority in place that we don't agree with, that somehow God is unfolding a plan and God is unfolding a purpose. And so Paul says, well, well don't give in to rebellion. And for the early believers, it's likely that Paul even has in mind uh, a, a temptation for the early believers to take part in a violent rebellion. We know at this time that the Roman Senate had instituted a really oppressive taxation structure that was crushing the poor and the marginalized, who were likely many of the early church, and that there was talk of potential uprising. And Paul says, don't rebel against authority. Don't give in to this temptation to sort of violently attempt to overthrow the power structures that be. Now, as Pastor Steve talked about this, man, I've had numerous conversations with with many of you as we've wrestled through uh, this text. And one of the the questions I've got was, well, if we're not doing that, does it mean that we're just passive? Does it mean that we just sit back and go, well, we'll let whatever happens, happens? Is this just a position of like, let things roll? 
And I don't think that's what Paul is saying. No, what Paul calls us to is a place of submission. And church, do you recognize that submission is not passive, that submission is actually an active place? Now listen to what Paul says in Romans 13. He says, you are to submit to the authorities that are put in uh, a charge over you because God has instituted them. Now, here's the reality, though, is that there's actually a higher authority, right? Our ultimate submission is not to the powers that be, whether it's your parents, whether it's uh, your boss, whether it's the government. Our ultimate authority is to submit first and foremost to God. Now, in, in a perfect world, our authorities would also be in submission to God, but we live in a broken world influenced by sin. So often there is a breakdown where our authorities are not themselves submitted to God, right? We tracking? What happens, though, is we trust that our ultimate submission is to God and to the plan and purpose that God is unfolding. So what I want to suggest to you is that a position of submission means that you and I are to have a gospel presence in the middle of the broken power structures of authority. So when Paul writes to the early believers, he's telling them, listen, there's authorities and power structures over you that are opposed to you, that are trying to, to, to come against the movement of Christianity. But he says, listen. He says, submit to those authorities. Don't, don't give part in a violent uprising. He says, but trust that God is unfolding a plan and a purpose. And that you and I, as we submit to the authority of God, are to have a gospel presence right in the middle of the times that we're in. So let me, let me jump into this text with you. Romans chapter 13, uh, verses 11 and 12. Listen to what Paul says. He says, and, and do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over and the day is almost here. So a couple things. Let, Let me kind of break this down for us. Notice Paul says, and do this. And and he's calling the people to a place of mission. Right? We'll flesh out what this mission is in a second. He says, and do this, understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to what? For you to wake up from your slumber. And there's this moment where Paul says, you have a mission. We'll flesh out what that mission is here in a second. But he says, the moment has come for you to wake up from your slumber, for you as a community to rise up from this place of passiveness and to step into a place of action. Now, when Paul talks about waking up from slumber, listen, he is not telling the church at Rome that they're a bad or unfaithful church. In fact, we have every sense as we read the book of Romans uh, that the, the church at Rome is a very faithful church. In Romans chapter 15, Paul says this in verse 14. He says, I myself am convinced, brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. So this is not a church that is, that is not faithful. He says, no, no, no. Rather, when Paul says, wake up from your slumber, what he means is this is the moment to step into the times that you're in with a sense of urgency. So I think in the context that Paul's in, uh, spiritual slumber is this. Spiritual slumber is to be so preoccupied with the everyday rhythms and routines of life that we forget the spiritual reality of our existence. Spiritual slumber is this. It's to be so caught up in the everyday rhythms and routines of life that we forget the spiritual reality to our existence. In other words, what Paul is saying is don't get so caught up in the flow and the current of culture that you forget that the God who came as a baby, who died on the cross and rose again, he's unfolding a plan of redemption. Paul says, wake up, step actively into this moment and recognize that the time for you to act with urgency as a community of believers is right now. So why might we be spiritually sleepy? I think there's a couple reasons. Uh, Number one, we might be spiritually sleepy because we're overwhelmed by our circumstances. 
For some of us, this is practical. For some of us, we're just trying to make it through a day. Just trying to survive. For others of us, we look at what's happening culturally and we go, I don't even know what difference I can make, so I'm just going to try to get through this time. And we just sort of try to bide our time, but we don't live with a sense of spiritual intentionality saying as you step into work, saying as you step into your neighborhood, saying as you step in your home, what might God be unfolding redemptively in my home, in my neighborhood, in my workplace? And so we allow ourselves to be spiritually complacent. Sometimes I think it's simply that we don't prioritize the call and the commission of the gospel, right? That when Jesus spoke to the disciples at the end of the gospel of Matthew, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. And we forget that that we are to live all of life on mission to be about the work of the movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we allow ourselves again to be lulled into a place of complacency. And we think our ultimate goal, our ultimate means is to make a lot of money and to retire early and to live comfortably. But as believers, our, our, our life is to have a bigger mission, a bigger sense of purpose. Finally, I think one of the reasons that we might be spiritually sleepy is that we think the way that Paul calls us to live is just simply not effective. Right? As we unfold what Paul's going to talk about in just a second, we look at the way that Paul's called us to live and we're going to say, is this really practical? So let's dive into this. The sense of urgency for Paul as he writes to the early believers, and Alan, if you'll switch back to this feed, uh, his urgency is driven by two things. One, it's driven by the mission that Paul is calling the believers to, and it's driven by the significance of the time that they're in. So let's look at this. At the beginning of verse 11, Paul says, and do this, right? And there's a question, what is he referring to? When Paul says, do this, he's actually referring back to everything that he had written in Romans 12, one up to this point, right? And and here's the challenge of preaching in a series. When you preach in a series, we break it up into nice little chunks. What that allows us to do is walk through it in detail. What we miss sometimes is the flow of Paul's thought. So when Paul says, do this, understanding the significance of the moment, let me remind you of what Paul has told us, right? I've got the summary for you in the note guide. When Paul says, do this, he's referring back, starting in 12 verse 1, where he says, offer all y'all's bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Paul says, don't be conformed any longer to the culture of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul is calling the believers to go all in on this Jesus thing, to submit and surrender their lives fully to the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hopefully you remember then uh, four weeks ago when Pastor Steve talked about spiritual gifts and we took the gifts assessment. Do you remember that? And we talked all about how we are to use our spiritual gifts to serve one another as a community of believers. And then we talked about living out love, uh, uh, living out the gospel as blessing givers and peacemakers. We talked about Romans chapter 12, where Paul says, bless those who persecute you. And as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. And then last uh, two weeks, we've been talking about submission to authority. And last week, Pastor Steve talked about love one another with an agape love that seeks the best interest of the person that you're serving. Right, So when Paul says do this, he's referring back to the way that he has described Christian living. Offer your body as a sacrifice. Go all in on this Jesus thing. Serve one another with your spiritual gift. Live out love as blessing givers and peacemakers. Paul says this is what you are to do in the time and season that you're in. Yes, Jesus has come and yes, we are waiting for him to return. But right now in the season and the culture that you were in, live out this call of the gospel to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, to see things from a gospel perspective 
and to live out love as blessing givers and peacemakers, to submit to authority and to love one another because that is how we begin to transform the culture and the power structures that be. And and what Paul is saying is uh, uh, the the urgency of this mission is driven also by the timeliness. Notice what he says. If we'll go back to that passage, Ellen. He says, and do this, their mission, understanding the present time. He says, the moment to wake up is already come. The time is already here. The moment to act with urgency is now. Why, Paul says? He says, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. What Paul is saying is the coming of Christ is nearer now than the moment when they first put their faith in Jesus. And he says that almost 2,000 years ago. So you can imagine now 2,000 years later, how much nearer is the fullness of our salvation when Christ will return as king and he will finally and fully bring all things under his authority. Paul says, because that moment is drawing near, that is why we are to wake up, to live life right now in the midst of culture, in the midst of the power structures that be with a sense of gospel presence. When Paul says the night is nearly over and the day is almost here, what he means is the day of Jesus coming. And what Paul was saying is because we believe Jesus is coming, this is not a moment to throw up our hands and say, well, Jesus is coming back. I guess I'll let him take care of it. Paul goes, no, no, no. Because Jesus is coming, you were to have urgency to be about the things that Paul is calling us to, to be about living out a gospel presence that begins to have transformative impact. What happens though, church, is we begin to think in the middle of culture, in the middle of the power structures that be, the temptation for the early Christians who have been redeemed was to live just like the culture of Rome. See, for them to take up a rebellion against the powers of Rome is to use power to fight power. But what Paul is saying is don't live in rebellion. He says live in submission, but you're not going to live in obedience, right? Submission doesn't mean obedience to this structure. We live in obedience to the culture and to the call of Jesus Christ. So in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says this. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there. Church, listen. When our citizenship is in heaven, what it means is that we are to live out this culture, the culture of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So when Paul says, offer your body as a living sacrifice, when Paul says, bless those who persecute you, when Paul says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, all things taken right out of Romans 12, he is describing the culture of the kingdom of heaven. And what he wants you and I to do as believers is to live right now in culture, living our current culture here, living out the characteristics of a new culture that is coming in its fullness when Jesus returns. Are we tracking? I think sometimes what I see in our, in our cultural moment right now is I see Christians giving way to despair, going, what difference can we make? And we think it's going to come through political power or rebellion. And I think what Paul calls the believers to is this simple act of faithful presence and submission to the call and the commission of Jesus Christ to go and make disciples. And in church, by the way, this is why I said earlier, some of us are prone to be spiritually sleepy because we don't think what Paul is calling us to will be effective. Quite frankly, church, I think for many of us, we don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ actually has the transformative power that we say that we believe it does, right? We believe Jesus can transform. And then we look at culture, we go, well, culture is going to hell in a handbasket. Nothing can happen there. We're just going to wait for Jesus to return. And Paul goes, no, he says, right now, as you wait for the return of the kingdom, wake up from your slumber, live out a gospel presence, bless those who persecute you, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Church, this is the moment. 
And listen, I hear so many people lamenting the times we're in. Listen, church, don't lament the times we're in. Recognize that God raised you up, called you to faith precisely in the season, in this moment of history, because you have a role to play in the transformative work of the kingdom of God. Rather than lamenting, we can lament that it's not as we want it to be, but recognize this is the moment where Paul says, y'all wake up from your slumber. Recognize the spiritual reality that the gospel is breaking in, that there is light of hope at the edges of the world, and Jesus is doing and unfolding something. And he calls us to partner with him. Now, here's the question. How? Right? How how does this unfold? And I want to suggest to you what Paul calls the believers to is this. Simple, consistent faithfulness to day in, day out, step into living out our radical identity as Jesus' followers. Right? Paul doesn't have some grand strategy for a takeover. No, no, no. He says, live into the reality of each day, recognizing that God is unfolding a spiritual plan of redemption, that there is a purpose that God is bringing to fruition. And even when God institutes authority that you don't agree with, that there's something redemptive that God is doing. And we have to trust that if God is sovereign, that he is bringing all things to his plan and purpose for his son to return again victorious as a king. I'm, I'm struck, by the way at how Jesus talks about the culture of the kingdom of God in the gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 13, it says this, Matthew 13, 31. It says, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in a small field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants, and it becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in his branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. And Jesus says this movement, the kingdom of God that is already here, but not yet in its fullness. We're waiting for the return of Jesus when his kingdom will be fulfilled and complete. Paul says the movement of that kingdom, or Jesus says the movement of that kingdom is like a mustard seed. And here, like, or part of me, maybe you're here too, part of me is like, ah, oh, Jesus, you've got the, the worst metaphors for the kingdom. Couldn't get, like the kingdom of heaven is like a rushing waterfall coming with power. The kingdom of God is like a mighty movement. And yet Jesus says that the kingdom is like a mustard seed. I mean, have you ever looked at, I mean, a mustard seed is like teeny tiny. And and yet what Jesus says, he says, when you plant the mustard seed, he says it grows into the most significant plant in the garden, and it actually provides refuge for the birds that come and perch in his branches. And then Jesus continues, and part of me is like, oh, this next metaphor has to be way better. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast. And I'm like, yeast? I mean, have you ever opened a packet of yeast? I mean, it's like tiny little granules of this stuff that makes bread. And Jesus says, the, the mighty movement of the kingdom is, is like yeast. But listen to what he says. He says, this woman takes yeast, a little bit of yeast, and she works it into 60 pounds of flour. I really wanted to get like a whole uh, pallet of, of flour, 60 pound, like 61 pound bags. And that, that's a lot of flour. And yet this woman takes this little bit of yeast, and as she works it into the bread and the water and the sugar, that yeast ferments, and it causes the dough to rise. And there is this, like, multiplication thing that happens as it becomes something grander than it was. And church, here's the reality. The movement of the kingdom, 
often looks subtle. It looks like something tiny and insignificant, like 150 poor, ragged believers gathering in the capital city of Rome. And yet it grows and multiplies through this simple, ordinary, everyday faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ to have profound global impact. It is striking to me that this church at Rome that was persecuted in the first century by AD 312, 313 becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. Fast forward to AD 2021, the Roman Empire is no more and the gospel of Jesus Christ has global influence. And church, listen. Paul was put to death by the Roman Empire. The early believers faced terrible persecution by the Romans. And there was a moment where you can imagine they questioned, God, what are you doing? Is this plan of redemption all for nothing? And yet church, it's the reality of the mustard seed and the yeast. That it's the simple, ordinary, living out gospel presence day in and day out. It is the impact that you have on your children. It is the impact that you have on your friends. It is the impact that you have on your boss. And maybe you have a boss or someone in authority who just mistreats you. And you hear Paul's word in Romans 12, bless those who persecute you. Maybe it's a government decision that you disagree with. And you hear Paul saying, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. And somehow in the middle of that, as we live out the faithful call to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the reality of the mustard seed and the yeast takes hold and the gospel urgency to live out our life as those who are all in with Jesus, as blessing givers and peacemakers, somehow that is the means through which God brings his kingdom to fruition. I pray, church, that we would live with a sense of urgency in the middle of the times that we're in. Redemption is already here. It's not yet in its fullness. Every day, church, we should be praying, Lord, would your kingdom come? And use me in a small way to help your kingdom move forward today. Help me be the yeast of the gospel in the life of someone who needs your hope. Help me to be the influence of the mustard seed of the hope of the gospel of transformation. That as I plant the the seed of your hope and truth in the life of another person, may they find refuge and hope and life. Do this, Paul says, understanding the present time. The hour has come for y'all to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over and the day of Jesus' coming is almost here. And so let us step into each day with gospel urgency. As we close out the service, we're going to take communion together. And what I want to challenge us to do as we take communion is I want you to pray about a place where maybe it's your workplace, maybe it's your neighborhood, maybe it's Uh, maybe it's just some cultural, like larger movement thing that you're just wrestling with. And I want you to wrestle with this question. What does Paul's teaching mean for you and your sphere of influence right now? Right? I don't have three neat little application points, but I want us to wrestle with the truth of this text. And by the way, I want to give you homework this week. Would you go home and read Romans 12, 1 through the end of 13 in one sitting? I, I want you to hear the flow of Paul's writing. Right? Skip over the, the, the chapter number. Just read it all in one setting. I want you to hear the flow of what Paul is calling the believers to and let it take root in your heart and life. And then I want you to wrestle with this question. What does this mean for me right now in my sphere of influence? I, I probably had, I don't know, 10 conversations around Romans 13 over the last four weeks. And people said, Pastor, what's the answer? And I said, I, I don't have an answer for you. H- how do you read the text and what does that mean for you? 
Let us wrestle with this and let us wrestle with what it means and what it looks like to have gospel urgency right now.